Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 79 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, new video podcast. This should be episode four or five of the video podcast which you can find on our website at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. Just uh, navigate to the website. You'll see the latest video. You can click through and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, your boy is playing a little injured today. I had round two of the vaccine uh, a couple days ago. And normally, I'm one of these people who... I know it sounds like prototypical male bullshit, but um, you know, for the last couple weeks... Tons of my coworkers have been getting round two of the vaccine, and they've been telling me, man, it really fucked me up, man. It really knocked me out for a couple of days, and I <laughs> I guess I just sort of assume when that happens to people, I kind of assume that they're kind of weak-willed or something, and I know I have no business thinking that about people, but that's that's where I go, and so I just sort of assume that I'll be okay, and everybody else is sort of calling in to work uh, ahead of schedule saying they need their shift covered or whatever. And that's cool, but for me, I was like, I'm just going to assume I'm going to be fine, and I will be. Um, got round two of the vaccine and felt pretty good for the most part, day one, <laughs> except after about six hours or so, I started to feel congested. I started getting a little bit of a headache and um, ended up, you know, I, I work late into the evening and ended up stepping away for like the last hour and a half of work. Um, to lay down because I really started to feel real crummy. And um, I, I haven't been fully incapacitated for the last three days or so, but some, I mean, I, I just feel out of sorts. I've had to like take like, I've had to lay down for like 20 minutes multiple times a day. Um, slept for like 12 hours that first night, woke up at like midday at like 1230, which is insane for me. And um, excuse me. Yes, I've just not really fully recovered. So I'm playing injured today. Um, that's okay. I'm human. Um, so yeah, I guess that means in about 10 days or so, I'll be immune to COVID. Or I could probably still carry it to, to other people, but um, I'll be vaccinated. Um, yeah, as I think about it, I <laughs> it's cool. I mean, I definitely don't want to catch COVID, but um, I think it also starts to signal to me that this you know, this crazy year that we've all had had with the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm not pretending that the end is in sight, but I guess I feel like it's only a matter of time before we return or attempt to return to our uh, normal lives, which if I'm being honest, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I think the pandemic has played to my strengths. Um, your boy's pretty domestic. I like staying home. Um, and so it hasn't been easy. You know, I think like a lot of people, I've, I've been punctuated with um, some depression, anxiety, uh, inability to focus, you know, so it's it's had, it's taken a toll on me, but I don't think it's in, as hard for me as it has been for other people, um, both because it plays to my strengths, but I'm also very lucky in this time. You know, I have my partner, I have my job, so, you know, the ways it's been hard for me are you know, conceptual compared to most people, right? We talked about, you know, my buddy Mark, who was sick, plenty of other people 
once or twice removed from me um, who've been affected by COVID and, and also working on a crisis line. I mean, I've, I've been in contact with plenty of people whose lives have been turned upside down by the pandemic. So all things considered, I'm pretty lucky. Um, and yet, you know, the idea of going back to my life as normal, I don't know that I want to. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I want to return to working on site. Uh, I've enjoyed going to school remotely. I you know, I've been applying to schools. I've started to hear back from some, we'll probably get to some of that, but, um, you know, the idea of starting again next semester and having to go to school and be in, sit through class and sit through lecture, um, you know, and just that commute, you know, really having to segment that time out of the day for the commute, uh, sounds kind of like a goddamn nightmare. Now, once I'm back in and I'm sure it'll just be a part of my life, but as I'm sitting here today, I I don't want to do that. And, even the idea of like walking to work, which is relatively close to me, but, um, you know, having that heavy compartmentalization, which was normal before now feels very foreign. And, um, having to go back to that uh, way of life is going to be a a transition for all of us. So, uh, maybe you relate to that. Maybe you don't, maybe you're super eager about that. Maybe you, you can't wait to get back to work and see everybody. I think it probably depends on how your temperament is. Uh, but round two of the vaccine was very different than round one. Um, out here in the Bay Area, a lot of people are getting it different ways, but um, there's this major vaccination site at the Alameda County Fairgrounds, which is about a 30-minute drive from where I'm at. And uh, the first time I went there, it was like a ghost town. I basically pulled into this huge parking lot, and they had a bunch of tents set up, and I just rolled through, got my shot, and left. They have this. They have, they have you sequestered, sort of parked, uh, in this uh, adjacent parking lot for about 15 minutes in case you have an allergic reaction. But that was the longest wait time. I was there for maybe, maybe 20 minutes and I was out. Um, this time was a fucking zoo. It was raining, which I think slowed things down, but there were hundreds of cars there. Um, it probably, you know, it was almost like waiting for a roller coaster at Disneyland. You know, you queue up and from where I was stopped the first time, you just think, Jesus Christ, how long is it going to take for me to get all the way up there? Um, probably like 40 or 50 cars ahead of me. And they had multiple lanes of cars, probably about eight lanes of cars. And uh, just sort of inching along forever. The rain's coming down. I mean, you really feel for the people who are volunteering. Um, I think my girlfriend told me that, you know, we're lucky enough to get the vaccine through work. But people who don't qualify for the vaccine in terms of their age bracket or whatever, um, they're actually able to get vaccinated by volunteering at the vaccination site. I think after you volunteered four hours, you're now a frontline worker or whatever the designation is. And so through that volunteer experience, you get to get vaccinated, um, which is kind of a cool program. I mean, it means that those, you know, the people volunteering, those positions are probably in high demand. Um, but you just think, God bless the hearts of the people who are volunteering their time to facilitate this because they're getting rained on. <laughs> um, so thank you to those people. So I think that slows things down significantly. But um, yeah, it probably took me about two hours. Um, I have this thing I try to do. I'm not great at doing it all the time. I kind of forget a lot of times, but every once in a while, it probably comes from me not meditating enough. I think I have to get back into meditation for this to be a um, a regular practice of mine. But if I'm ever stuck in traffic or if I'm in a situation that really just kind of sucks, um, you know, it's very easy for me to get frustrated but at least in this moment, I was able to remind myself as I was sitting there and saying, 
you know, you could be sitting here for the next hour and a half or two hours. Um, you know, you better reconcile yourself to do something. And so, uh, out of the blue, I, I went on to Spotify and I, um, I don't know why I thought it was sort of work with the mood or whatever, but I, I pulled up Bartok's string quartets, Bela Bartok. Um, and so I just started listening to those. I only got through like two and a half of them, but, um, yeah, it was just kind of meditative, just sort of sitting there in the rain in my car, listening to these string quartets. I feel like such a classical music scholar. Last week we were talking about Wagner. Actually, we'll probably talk about Wagner again. Um, as I have, you know, I was mentioning that um, the SF Opera is broadcasting the uh, the Ring Cycle that they did from 2018. I saw the first one, Das Rheingold. Um, I actually saw that produ- production twice. Once when they first did it in like maybe 2008, 2009. Uh, they did it again in 2018. I saw Das Rheingold both times. But, um, uh, they're broadcasting the rest of the cycle. So last weekend was Dave Alcure. Uh, and um, just this morning, I finished watching Siegfried, which is probably my least favorite of the four operas in the cycle. But uh, next week will be the last one, Go to Dame Room. Um, why am I talking about? Oh, yeah, I've just, I, I, out of the blue for some reason, I've spent a lot of time listening to classical music. Um, it's actually, actually, it's kind of been building up for the last couple of weeks, I feel like. Um, normally, I listen to Spotify or something in my car. Um, but I would say every once in a while, I just start listening to classical radio. I either, maybe I get bored of listening to whatever's on my Spotify or whatever, but I just I tune into the local classical station and, um, I don't know. It's just, a, it's a different way to listen to music. Um, I sort of laugh with my girlfriend cause when she's in the car with me, she sort of, she's always content to just sort of listen to whatever we're listening to. Um, and I sort of, I laugh sometimes because so much of, uh, you know, and I say this in air quotes, classical music is really pretty nerdy, especially when you listen to like older Baroque music. It's like, you know, some chamber Baroque music with like a, like a, it's like a recorder duet with harpsichord. And you're like, imagine somebody listening to this and hearing it the same way that I might hear like a song by the 1975, where you start hearing those those uh <laughs> you hear that recorder duet and you just go oh yeah dude this is my shit this is my fucking jam dude this is on every mix cd i make i just i just can't imagine people hearing that music the same way it just doesn't hit the same way as the kids say um but it's uh i don't know it, i think it i think it does make you smarter honestly if you don't listen to classical music, I bet if you just tuned into the classical radio station and just listen to that every time you're in the car, um, or hell, most of these most of these stations are probably streaming online. Hell, just fucking go to Spotify and just listen to some classical mix that they make for you or something like that. Um, if you just listen to that for a couple of weeks, I bet you'll I bet you'll feel better. I think it. I think that stuff has the power to change your your way of life and the way you think. You know, not just classical music. I'm sure a lot of things do it, but. But for me, it's just a, it's just a different way to listen to music, and also because I can read music, kind of, <laughs> um, meaning I can follow along with an orchestra orchestra score. I can't really process it at the rate that I, you know, could tell you what's going on in this moment, like what key are we in, or, or what chord just sounded, or, you know. But I can follow along, and if I get lost, I can find my place again. Um. Um. But it just. Uh, it sort of satiates a couple things for me. I enjoy orally. I just sort of like the music. 
it's pleasing in a different way. It's not like, again, it's not, it doesn't hit you the way like, you know, um, your favorite pop song does. Like if I'm digesting a lot of classical music, there's a palpable feeling I get when I click over to something like the 1975 or, or Bounty Killer, some dance hall track or whatever. You just go, oh shit, it's almost like a relief, <laughs> which says something that, you know, there's a, there is a work element involved with listening with certain types of mu- uh, music or watching certain types of movies too, for that matter. Like watching Akira Kurosawa is great. Akira Kurosawa is a great director, but when you watch those movies, it does. It's 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 not. Uh, I don't know. It's not. Um, it's enjoyment, but it's a qualified enjoyment. You know, it's part intellectual, part um, aesthetic. I don't know the word for it, but um, you know, it's not a it's not a a blockbuster or a thriller. I don't know. It's not something that you can wholly give yourself over to. And a lot of that is because the medium is not culturally relevant when you really think about it. I mean, I was probably talking last week about The Ring and how um, you know deep it is psychologically, and all, and I still feel that way. Um, but so the the themes are timeless. The themes are always relevant. And I think if you're sensitive to it, I think anyone who sits down with Wagner's ring cycle, it's going to have an impact on them psychologically. And you will, you will know that you are in the presence of a real art. Um, and it's going, I think it's going to affect anyone's creative output. Anyone who has spent time with those operas is going to be impacted by them. It just is the case. You you can't be indifferent to them. There, there is a spirit in that music, but at the same time, it is not culturally relevant. There is something kind of silly about it at the same time, you know, especially when you get to like the third opera Siegfried and it's going on for about four hours or so. Um, you know, it's just opera is not a, you know, you know I, rem- I actually remember years ago when I was studying music in school, I remember, I think his name was Dan Coleman, modern composer. Uh, his name is not relevant. I just, I, I was spending a lot of time with classical music and um, there was a lot of mentors in my life who were, you know, either music professors or professional musicians in the, in the, um, classical music sphere. And a lot of people would lament, like, why create in this medium at a time where it's not very popular? Like, why would someone choose to be a classical composer or a a concert composer? That's the word you want to use now. And it's a good question. You know, it's not very culturally relevant. I mean, if you, First of all, if you ever buy tickets to the symphony or the opera, be prepared, be prepared to be um, uh, pestered. Because if you've ever bought a symphony ticket or an opera ticket, your mailbox, your actual mailbox begins to get inundated with requests for money and to buy more tickets. And, um, you know, these are programs which are entirely donor funded for the most part. I mean, they, they have to make their nut on tickets somewhere. But if they didn't have wealthy patrons giving money to the opera or to the symphony, I don't think these systems could operate. Now, I don't really pretend to know anything about it, but you know something's afoot when you buy tickets to the symphony and then they call you a month later, You know, which happened to me. I took my girlfriend to see a Stravinsky concert because we wanted to see, well, I, <laughs> I wanted to see The Rite of Spring. She happened to go. And they called me like a month later. And I don't remember what I said exactly, but I said something to that effect, like to the person I was speaking with, I was, uh, you know, say, Hey, I know you're doing your job, but look, I bought my tickets. I saw the show. That's the extent of the relationship I want with the symphony hall. If there's another concert coming up, I want to see, 
I'll buy tickets, but don't, please don't call me. Like, please remove me from whatever list you have me on where you can just call me and ask me for money. You know, that, that doesn't happen in any other arena where I buy tickets, you know. I saw Parasite in theaters. Bong Joon-ho didn't call me at home and ask me if I could subscribe to his Patreon account. <clears throat> I've seen Radiohead like four times and I've never gotten a text message from Tom York. I would see them again if he did that, though. <sighs> but yeah. Yeah, so listen to classical music if you haven't given it a throne yet. Although be warned, man, classical music is one of those things that's like wine where people who are into it can ruin it for you. Actually, now that I think about this, I would, I don't know what this says about me, but most things that I'm into, I actually don't like the community around it. You know, I have, I'm looking at my notes here on things I want to talk about. One of them is I, I started doing this NRA marksman, quali- I don't know what they call it officially, but the NRA marksmanship qualification program or something like that. It's basically this, um, uh, Uh, curriculum for shooting so you can become a better marksman and they have different classes there's like rifle pistol etc etc but i i I found this for like whatever your pistol qualification is and i was like i'm gonna do that i'm gonna work that system i don't know what the time frame is going to be i don't know how long it's going to take um but you know it's these graded system of marksmanship right and so uh I don't know. I'm working through that. But as I'm sort of preparing for that, I'm just thinking about, you know, one of the things I, as much as I've enjoyed shooting lately, I hate gun culture. You know, everybody I've encountered at the gun range so far, even at the the stores that I've gone to, are, I, I really, really strongly dislike. Um, I just have a visceral repulsion to them. There's a certain kind of like, there's a, just a lame masculinity that comes along with firearms in a lot of cases. Um, the only the only people that I've ever that I really have like respected are some of the the YouTube personalities that I that I um, have uh, learned a lot about uh, firearms from online. One of them is a channel uh, Hickok Forty Five. He's just like an older guy who shoots in his range on his land in Tennessee. Uh, very affable, very humble guy. Uh, enjoy hearing uh, about his experience and what he knows. Um, there's another one, I think it's like Gunblue40, very old guy who just, uh, but clearly very knowledgeable and presents, uh, firearms information in a very accessible way. Um, and, um, I don't know what I was relating this to, but there's, there's a palpable feeling and it's definitely not something you get on this podcast. I can fucking promise you. But when you hear someone who's speaking from their expert, um, uh, who genuinely has an expert opinion. You can really feel that. There's a certain confidence or humility that comes across. They don't feel the need to overcompensate with personality or be over-emphatic. They just sort of state their very informed opinion, and it has a certain gravity to it. Um, I know we've talked about this on the podcast in terms of something else. I've sort of lamented that I don't feel like I have that in anywhere in my life. My 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 areas of interest are so diverse. I'm not really an, <laughs> I'm sort of a jack of all trades, king of none. Um, I, I don't really feel like I have that um, expertise that's going to win people over if I talk about something. I just have my very personal opinion that's probably about as valid as anybody else's and you either agree with it or you don't. Um, but I don't know that I have the expertise to sort of uh, evangelize people, right? Um, but, uh, 
I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, except, uh, you can, you can very much hear when someone, you can feel that someone is speaking. <laughs> You're probably hearing it now when someone is really speaking at the, just at the cusp of their understanding or their capacity, you know, you get these people on YouTube a lot who create these videos about some subject of interest that they have. It could be Wagner's ring. It could be, uh, stoicism is something that people are obsessed with lately. Uh, it's a worthy subject, right? There's a lot of great literature there, but why it's cool now all of a sudden, I, I couldn't tell you. Something with men, some, something about the current state of masculinity. Stoicism is a big thing. Also, smoking meats is a big thing for dudes lately. I don't know what's up with that. Being a fucking lumberjack. Like, smoking meats, uh, smoking meats and hewing your own axe handles are, is something that guys feel the need to do lately. And who knows, maybe firearms is one of those. We're going to look, look up in six months and everybody's going to be owning a fucking revolver like your boy. An old cowboy gun like your boy. Um, but, uh, yeah, people create these videos that they're not experts. They just read about half a dozen Wikipedia articles and just decided that they're experts. Oh, I see. I'm tying this, in, this into classical music. When you go to any video on YouTube that's like a classical performance, you see a litany of the same comments, which are, are all people have just weaved in things that are uh, usually false, but stated very plainly on the Wikipedia article pertaining to that piece of music. Um, recently, I, I, probably because I was listening to the string quartets, uh, I was listening to like Bartok's early music. One of them is his first violin concerto, which was actually published posthumously. Um, he originally wrote it for his, you know, he was this unrequited love, this violin player early in his career. And he wrote this violin concerto, which he premiered and then just sort of held on to. And it was never published and it was sort of suppressed until he died. It was published. And it's actually a really great piece of music. It actually, I, I think there's actually some thematic links between it and his, uh, his first string quartet. But, um, uh, you know, people just post the same kind of comments below it you know, oh, I really enjoy this. Um, I'm thinking of the first string quartet now, but it's like, oh, it really reminds me of Beethoven's Opus 14, yada, yada. It's like people just repeat the same shit over and over again. And it's like people also put comments in classical music. They, they type in a way that they would never speak in their natural life. You know, like this person's a buffoon, but the minute they start talking about wine or classical music, they become uh, Michael Caine. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of something... Some, someone hoity-toity. I don't fucking know. They become fucking Prince Charles. Actually, is Prince Charles the creepy one? Isn't it sad that Americans don't know anything about the royal family? I don't know who those fucking people are. I don't know them by name. I don't, Prince Andrew, Prince Charles, Prince Edward. I don't know. Um, but people become Little Lord Fauntleroy the minute they start talking about, oh, this sublime performance, you know? Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. People are pretentious. Whew. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, listen to classical music, but be weary, I think is what I'm saying. Do it alone. Actually, I'm just going to go full misanthrope here, but <laughs> I was actually thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great when we can go back to the opera hall, right? Or when we can go back to the symphony hall? And uh, I was watching this performance of Siegfried, was the most recent uh, ring opera that was broadcast on SF Opera's website. And the minute it started, I was reminded why I never want to go back to the opera house, which is um, uh, symphony audiences, opera audiences skew elderly, right? So 
it's a lot of people who need hard candy at some point. I, I don't know when that when that threshold is for your age, but at some point people just need hard candy when they go out. They just need to suck on a lozenge. Their throat gets dry. Um, and so they're always like unra- un- unwrapping things in the middle of a, per- of a performance or coughing. There's something about classical audiences. They wait until there's a silence in the piece of music to cough. You see this in live recordings, live video uh, performances on YouTube. Opera and symphony audiences just cough, 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 cough. It's the bane of every concert performance, uh, recorded concert performance ever, is the coughing audience. You don't find it at plays, you don't find it at musicals, but something about the symphony hall and the opera house, people just cough it up. Um, And for your boy who has like you know, I attune to noises like that and I can't like not focus on them. It's very distracting. Um, even, uh, just listening to these, you know, last week, Dave Alcura, this week, Siegfried, just watching these operas on streaming and listening to them at home, you can really pump the volume. You know, you'd think, you know, classical music is not like a rock concert, you know, where, you know, to see it live, you really get this sound and experience that you don't get at home. You really can. And a lot of people would disagree with this. But you really can get, I believe, a superior experience at home <laughs> by listening to a symphony on your home stereo system um, or watching a recorded performance at home because you can kind of blast it in a way that the music just doesn't carry through the concert hall in the same way. I mean, a lot of these places really rely on like physical acoustics and not amplification. I mean, I remember years and years and years ago, I saw a performance of... Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And they made a disclaimer. This was back when I was living in Arizona. They made a disclaimer to the audience, like, just so you know, full disclosure, we use some amplification for this performance. And, like, people were critical of that. You know, like, there was something anathema, right, if that's the right word. There was something something about amplifying some of the performance, like using microphones to boost the chorus or whatever, that was sort of antithetical to the concert-going experience. And I, I kind of get that. But it's also like, if we can make it sound better, we can. I mean, one of the bane of, like, even f- like for the, you know, um, I guess it was Dave Alcure. There, there's something about War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco, which I've been to a couple times. If anyone is standing upstage, there's some kind of sound trap where you really can't hear people. You know, I'm sure they have like boom mics at the front of the stage, but if people aren't face, facing downstage front and center, sometimes the, the sound gets lost a little bit. Um, and I don't, uh, tons of operas have people singing off stage. Like for some reason, I'm thinking of uh, Fidelio by Beethoven, like someone stings from their chamber or like in Salome, uh, John the Baptist has to sing from his cistern at some point. Um, in Siegfried, you know, you hear Fafner, the dragon, who's off stage at some point singing. You can never hear anybody. It's like, just get that motherfucker a microphone backstage, please, so we can hear what's going on. Anyway, I didn't know I had such strong opinions about this, but I guess I do. Anyway, um, so yeah, I guess I'm running a little sick with the vaccine. Um, I did mention I'm, using, I'm doing this NRA, you know, marksmanship qualification program. And uh, I was a little overconfident. I'll be honest. Uh, I've been going to the range once a week. I've been shooting like 100 rounds a week. And um, the first, I'm not going to bore you with all the steps, but the first part of this marksmanship thing is you basically have to get uh, paper plates. You have to get like 10 paper plates and you shoot 10 shots at each plate. 
And uh, I think the first step of the, is they have to be, uh, all shots have to be within a, a half an inch of the um, edge of the plate. And you have to do it sitting. You have to use a bench rest. And I thought that's fucking, oh, and it's at like 15 feet, which is not that far. And so I said, fuck it, I'm actually going to skip that one. Because the second one is more difficult, if I just do that, I just, by proxy or by default, I, I qualify for the first part too. But the second part is the same thing, except your shots have to be within an inch and a half, inch and a half of, the, of the edge of the paper plate. So I think it's like a six-inch grouping or something like that, which at 15 feet is not that hard to do, right? Um, they get progressively more difficult, but I, I thought this was still a pretty low-hanging fruit. So I do what I always do, which is I thought, you know what, that's a little bit too easy. I'm actually going to make it harder on myself. So instead of shooting it at 15 feet, uh, which is five yards, I shot it at 10 yards. I shot it at twice the distance. And I should have abandoned immediately because, uh, and maybe I'm kind of making excuses here, but I use like a, a new ammunition just because the ammunition is so scarce these days. I just had to get whatever was available. The ammunition I got is not as good. You can actually feel it between shots. They're just not powered the same. It's just kind of weird. Um, but it didn't go well. And even though I did most, you have to basically get at least 10 targets, right? And technically, they don't have to be shot in sequence. They don't have to be shot on the same day. You just have to have a cumulative 10 targets. But I, this I do feel, which is like, you know, you, let's say you, I mean, technically you could shoot 10 targets a day, 10 days in a row. And as long as you get at least one target from each of those days, you could put them together and say, you have 10 qualifying targets. Ergo, you tick the box for this. I think they just call it marksman. You're a pro marksman or marksman class one or whatever it is. Um, that doesn't really do it for me. You know, it's like people who say that they ran a marathon, but they walked a lot of it. It's like, you, you can't run a marathon. You completed a marathon. Doesn't mean you shouldn't get a medal. Doesn't mean you didn't participate. Doesn't mean you're not physically fit. But if you're going to say that you ran a marathon or that you can run a marathon, you should be able to run a marathon. And so for me, it's like, I look at this like this, you know, if you get to say, if you can say that you can do this, you should be able to do it. You should be able to do it consistently. You know, I look at it like if somebody puts up 10 plates, you should be able to shoot 100 shots that are in within a certain grouping, right? Now, is it 100 out of 100 every time? No, maybe it's 99 out of 100. Maybe it's 95 out of 100 every time. But this should be something that you can do that is well within your facility. So I didn't succeed in one sitting. So I'm going to go back next week and try to do the same thing. But I think what I have thought from this experience is why make it so difficult? <laughs> why make it more difficult than it has to be on myself? Why not just tick the boxes? You know, sometimes we're presented with things and we th- like, I, I think uh, I'm sort of connecting a couple dots here, but I think about like when I, I hurt my back recently from exercising so much, it's like, just do the exercise that you're supposed to do. Like I, I started doing this thing where uh, I'm doing these sort of, you know, Tabata or hit or interval, you know, these are the types of exercise I'm doing, right? Like you do a a workout for 30 minutes, very intensely, then you take, uh, or sorry, 30 seconds, and then you take 15 seconds off and you're doing this type of interval training. And a lot of times they just have you sort of step between workouts so that you're not just standing there, right? But you're, you're resting. I've started just doing jumping jacks in between exercises. It's like, I can't just do 
enough or, or, or just do the exercise, it's like I always have to like make it harder on myself. And it's like, why do that? It's a type of uh, overcompensating, kind of masquerading as like, accomplishment i'm 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 not i'm not choosing the right words but i'm trying to i I think you know what i'm trying to say like i should just be content to do what i'm supposed to do well but i end up kind of screwing myself by trying to do more than i actually can like maybe someone who came up with this curriculum or this system whether it's working out or shooting there's a method to the madness you know, it's not like everything is just combined pandering to the least common denominator. I think there's a fair amount of that in the world, but not everything is that way. Like, maybe this is more difficult than you think it is. Or, um, you know, maybe you just do what you're supposed to do so that you don't injure yourself. But me, I just go, oh, yeah, I got to make it hard on myself. And, you know, I don't succeed. <laughs> I end up hurting myself, right? putting a little uh, hiccup in my step when I could have been just progressing, progressing consistently, right? I injure my back and now I have to contend with that. Or you go to the range and you say, fuck it, I'm going to do twice the distance and I'm going to skip step one. (laughs) And and I, believe me, I thought I was going to nail it. You know, I thought I was going to have 10 perfect paper plates with these tight groupings. And uh, actually, it's it's like a lot of things in life. When you step away and actually look at them, they're actually, you go, oh, it's actually not not bad. But, uh, you know, I didn't feel good when I left. It felt pretty shitty, you know? And it kind of, it, dude, it kind of fucked up the rest of my day. You know, I was really disappointed about it. It was also, it was also one of these moments, because I had been shooting consistently and shooting, I, I think, well, meaning I sort of track my progress and I, I, I can see from week to week that I'm steadily improving, you know, you kind of have these fantasies, whether it's working out or shooting or running, you know, if you're, if you're, if you are training for a half marathon or a marathon or whatever you're doing, you're just going to make consistent, steady progress toward your goal. And it's just going to be great. But there were moments, and I'm just sort of thinking this now, but when I did run a lot or when I, you know, did run a half marathon where you'd be like halfway through your training and it just fucking sucks. You know, you've been running, you've been increasing your distance. Maybe you're running you know, five miles, excuse me, you're running five miles consistently and you keep pushing it and pushing it. And then you hit a point one day where you have to run a significant distance, six, seven miles or something. And from, from the first step, it sucks and it's awful. And you just, all you want to do is stop. Your entire body is just screaming, stop, stop, stop. Oh, this sucks. I don't want to do it. And it's just hard. And none of it is enjoyable. And those are the moments where you, it's like the reality of what you're asking yourself to do really uh, hits you. <clears throat> and you have to, it, it's like you have this reckoning with yourself where you say, well, what did I think this was going to be? You know, so many times we commit to a process or something because we have an idea in our mind of what we thought it was going to be. But we never, and I don't know that we can but we never really calculate for the, the living experience of what we're asking ourselves to do. Like, oh, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, or I'm going to run a marathon, or I'm going to do X, or I'm going to do Z. And it's like, we like, we can picture ourselves, we, we sort of picture the Rocky montage of that experience and sign up for it. And we certainly picture ourselves victorious at the end of it. And we like the idea of that. We like the, the image of our success. 
So we sign up for it, but it's like we don't, we didn't really evaluate if we were constituted to actually get ourselves through the difficulty of it, you know? I'm sort of reminded of that with school every semester. You know, I have a midterm for my, in, in my psychology class, and it sucks. I mean, chemistry, I think, was actually probably the, the pinnacle of this. And actually, even calculus this semester is some of that, too. Well, here I am in the middle of my undergraduate academic career, and, um, <clears throat> you know, I can't wait till I finish. But every semester, and thankfully, I'm crossing myself, I'm an atheist crossing myself, um, every semester has ended well for me. But right now I'm in that phase where I just think, I don't know how I'm going to do it. It just sucks right now. You know, you have a math test, you have to study for it. And you're thinking, dude, fuck this. Or I have a psych midterm where I'm thinking, fuck this. And I just pray, oh, please, please don't fail. <sighs> so who knows? What am I saying? Oh, yeah, I had a bad day shooting or what I, I, I sort of saw as a bad day. And it was one of those moments where I was like, fuck, man. I thought I was just going to go out here and be Billy the fucking kid. I was just going to be wider out in this motherfucker. And you go, no, dude, this shit's hard. <laughs> if it was easy, everybody would do it. Excuse me. Yeah, you have to show up every day or, you know, consistently and do the work. <clears throat> if you want to be good at it, right? And I do. So yeah, it was a sobering day. And so yeah, I don't know, it affects my week. Um but such is life. But good things are happening. Good thing good things are happening as well. Um I did um I applied to a bunch of schools. Um I don't know why I'm sort of debating like how transparent to be about this stuff. Um But I, you know, I I basically I'm going to go to a UC. I'm going to go to a University of California school in that system. And there's a lot of them. There's UCLA, there's UC Berkeley, there's UC Santa Cruz, there's UC Merced, there's UC Irvine, there's UC Davis, there's others. Um, is there a Riverside? Is there UC Riverside? <clears throat> That's where they send people to die, probably. But um, if there is. Um, but uh, I've started to hear back from schools. Uh, I just heard from UC Santa Cruz that I got in. Yay! Go banana slugs. Uh, don't plan on going to UC Santa Cruz, but I mean, I, I want to get into every school I apply to, you know, just for my ego. Um, but that was kind of cool. The reason it's interesting, there's two things that happened this week, actually. There's a very famous all-female college, and I think they have some male graduate students, um, but mostly female undergraduate school uh, in Oakland called Mills, Mills College, which is actually closing down. Excuse me, they announced um, last week that they're closing, which is fucking insane. Mills is kind of an important uh, part of why I'm out here. I had a friend who was going there, and uh, I played some music on their campus years ago when I was living in Arizona. And I remember driving out here to perform. And I, I think I'm conflating a couple stories here, but, you know, I had uh, I'd been out to the Bay Area like half a dozen times in my life. And uh, I had a friend who was going to Mills, ended up coming out to Mills campus and playing some music uh, on their campus, and um, also spent a week here. I saw Bjork at the Shoreline Amphitheater down in Mountain View, California, but it was staying with a friend who was living in San Francisco, and it was on that drive back, excuse me, sorry, I'm burping water here, but um, on that drive back, 
um, to Arizona, I decided, hey, you know what? I think I want to move out there. And I think within a couple of weeks, I had my truck packed and everything I couldn't fit in my truck was sold. And I was driving out to Berkeley, California to stay with a dude I met on Craigslist named Jing Lu. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say his name, but, uh, uh, stayed with him on Craigslist and he had me drug test for him. He was like a medical student who had to drug test and he said, uh, Hey man, uh, can I get your piss? And I was like, uh, sure. Um, which is strange because I have smoked copious amounts of pot in my life and, um, it's just insane. I must not have been smoking at that time. I felt confident that I could pass a drug test. So, uh, I did. I he basically came up with this contraption where he could like carry my urine in on a tube around his waist and <laughs> dump it into his uh his testing cup. And he did. I remember he went out for like an hour or two and he's like uh he he literally bought like a and I should not supposed to be saying literally. He bought a case of water for me to drink cuz he's like dude, like he needed my urine in X amount like he needed it like very shortly. So I remember he was gone. I was just like chugging water to the point where I felt sick. Like, there's that famous story of the mother who dies. It's called Hold Your Wii for a Wii, where she was going to get that, you know, Nintendo Wii system for her kid. And basically, they did this radio prank where they had people chug water. And people were calling in saying, hey, you know, this is kind of dangerous. Like, people can die from being overhydrated. And uh, uh, someone did. One of the mothers died. But anyway, it was like I felt, I drank so much water, I felt sick. And I thought, oh, this is what it must be like to be overhydrated. Uh, But anyway, I provided the sample that he needed. And uh, it's actually a fond memory from my childhood. I actually, uh, isn't it funny that I consider like my early 20s my childhood? But anyway, getting old, man. Um, But yeah, enduring memory. And why am I talking about that? I don't know. Mills College. Anyway, it's just another institution that's closing out here, which is crazy. I mean, Mills has been around for a long, long time. Actually, I think the, um, I think Carl Heinz Stockhausen, who's like an old, electronic music composer i think he like started an electronic music program at most college years ago or something like that and i think one of my old professors larry solomon who was a theory guy i feel like he had something to do with that program as well um i'd have to look into his biography a little bit but um anyway just an important institution out here that's closing down which is crazy but the other part as i think about schools and really about college admissions is there's this phenomenal documentary on netflix called Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admission Scandal. Now, you're probably, unless you've been following the story, you're probably like me, where you knew that there was this college, college admissions scandal in the last couple of years where a lot of rich people were paying to have their kids get, a, get accepted to Ivy League schools. Uh, I didn't really know the story. Like, I thought that just sort of summarized it. But this documentary does a great job of really explaining what went down. And basically, there was a college... Uh, I wish I knew the term college, not college advisor, college, you know, he's basically a private person who could basically, you know, wealthy parents would pay him to prepare their kids for the ACT, the SAT, their college applications, basically get them coached up literally on how to apply for schools. And this person had some kind of leverage with the institutions where they could sort of uh, get them involved. And that's how it was sold to the kids at the very least. But what was really going on is this uh, this individual named Rick Rick Singer, Rick Springer, something like that? Um, he had relationships uh, in the athletic departments of Ivy League schools, and he would target programs that were 
had very small margins, you know, not like the football program, not the uh, baseball or basketball, but things like rowing, uh, maybe water polo, you know, things that weren't, you know, they weren't heavily funded. Um, he would find people within those programs who were, who were responsible for admissions and just get them on the dole. You know, he would pay them X number of dollars for their program or personally to hold spots for him. And he would find wealthy kids, you know, kids who were college applicants from wealthy homes and their families, their parents, usually behind the backs of their children. A lot of the times the kids did not know this was going on, but they would pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to this person to basically buy their way onto a team. And he would, you know, this per- like it could be a student who's never played water polo in their life, but he would Photoshop pictures of them playing and they would be walk-on athletes, which I don't really know what that means, except they would be accepted as athletes into the water polo team and would never, excuse me, they would never play, never had to show up to practice, et cetera, et cetera. They just got to go to the school. And, um... I guess when you put it that way, the kids had to know something was going on. But the the really crazy part and the part that really uh, sticks with me is, you know, a lot of times these kids, you know, these are competitive schools academically. And so it's one thing to be able to come, be able to cough up the cash, but you still have to meet certain criteria in terms of your grades. Now, your boy's never taken the SAT, never taken the ECT or anything like that. But the crazy part is he would have these kids who were generally competent and relatively smart, maybe even comparatively smart compared to most people, but, but to compete on that level, maybe not so much, but he would have them test for a learning disability and he would instruct them to throw the test so that they could qualify for these special testing conditions for the um, SAT or the ACT, where they could take it off site, even out of the city. Like they would go to another part of the state to take this test and they could take it in the presence of a uh, of an individual facilitator. You know, they would go to some classroom somewhere, and they would take the test by themselves. They would be able to take it over multiple days, and they would be supervised by a single individual who was sort of deputized to make sure that they didn't cheat. Well, this person is also on the payroll, and so that student turns in their test answers, and as the person is grading them, they are simply taking the test again and you know, succeeding to the extent that they're getting whatever score the person is trying to shoot for that seems reasonable. You know, he would he would say, what do you want on your SATs? Do you want a 1400? Do you want a 1500? Do you want a 1600? And depending on what you wanted, this person would take it such that that is the score that you would get. You would end up getting the exact score that you wanted. And the cool part about this documentary is it's not just news footage. It's actually, it's reenacted, which it sounds super lame, except it's reenacted from the actual transcripts of the uh, FBI tapes of the phone conversations that were taken through surveillance. And uh, it's just insane how it's acted out, the, the extent to which the parents wanted to deceive their own children. You know, you would have these kids who really wanted to get into Stanford or get into Yale or get into Harvard, and they would study and they would want to do well on the test and they would go in and they would look at their grade thinking that that's what they had gotten, not knowing that their parents had orchestrated this subterfuge whereby the score that they got was not their own. It was actually taken by a proxy by another person. And, uh, you know, as you watch this whole thing play out, um, 
you know, the scandal comes to light, people are prosecuted, famous people, people that you've heard of. Uh, is it Lori, Lori Laughlin? What's her name? The, the, uh, John Stamos's wife from Full House. Uh, she and her husband. They have some kid who's like a YouTube celebrity, apparently. Um, uh, she and her sister who were uh, outed in this whole thing. Uh, William H. Macy's wife. Um, crazy stuff. People went to jail for like five, six months. At least a couple weeks and, and months oftentimes. So just a crazy story. But the the real sort of clincher for this whole documentary is they sort of, they, they show this interstitial footage of people like myself who have applied to colleges. And when people, you know, uh, this is what happened with me with UC Santa Cruz is you ba- now, I guess they probably do send letters in the mail to certain people, but a lot of this uh, admission stuff is done via email or online. So for every college you apply to, you basically have to create this um, uh, user profile for the admissions process of that individual school. And they send your admissions update through that portal. So you get an email saying you have a new message in your UC Santa Cruz portal or whatever, and you have to check it and, and you get notified of your admission status. Either you're accepted or deferred or rejected or whatever it is. And uh, so they show, you know, people, you know, young people will film themselves looking at it. They say, oh my God, I got a message from Stanford. And their parents or they will be filming themselves on their cell phone, checking their email. And you see people who are discovering that they've been rejected and they just burst into tears. Now, part of me goes, kind of being a little bitch about the whole thing. But then I forget, these are, these are children. Your boy's 35. You know, I have a school that I want to go to, and if I didn't get in, I'd be very upset. But I can always go somewhere else, right? Um, I forget that these are children. Most of the people applying for these positions are 17, 18 years old. Devastating. You know, this is their future. If they don't get into this school, their future is ruined. Their life is going to be ruined. Now, of course, it does alter the trajectory of their life. But for most of us who are older, we realize it just, its yes, it will be different, but it's not going to be the end of your life, right? It's just going to be different. It's going to be, it's going to be what it is, and it's going to be fine. It's just going to be different. <clears throat> I will say, though, this is the part where... This is, this is where I'm not, I don't, this is where I'm not Mr. Popular. You know, the way they sort of frame it is, wow, look how unfair it is that these uber rich kids who already have everything going for them, you know, their parents basically bought them onto this program. Now, don't get me wrong. These are highly competitive schools. And if someone occupies a space, someone did not get in, right? There's only, it's like musical chairs. There's only so many seats more people apply for these positions than get them. So, yes, for every one person who bought their way on, there is one person who did not go there. But they show all these, all this footage as if, like, wow, look how heartbreaking. Look at the consequences of these people paying for these positions, right? Like, as if we're seeing the faces of the people who were rejected as a consequence, which the odds are, if unless you wanted to be on the row team at Stanford that year and you're watching the documentary then you could say oh yeah that person bought their place on and i didn't all that sucks for most people though you just got rejected like everybody else like if you just play the odds like anything else it's a very competitive school most people who apply don't get in it has nothing to do with 
you know, the evil infrastructure of the man or the privileged or the wealthy. You just didn't get in. Now, of course, like I said, on some level, yes, someone bought their place and, and there is someone out there who did not go to Stanford because of this. But that's not most of us. Um, anyway, what am I trying to <laughs> what am I trying to say by that other than being contrary? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it's a fascinating documentary. You should totally check it out. It's one of those things, actually, the day I got the vaccine, I sort of like, I laid down with the lights on, just so like I had to put my head down. You ever get those types of headaches where sometimes you even need to turn the lights off, but I just like laid down and put my, put my head in my arms just to like, you know, kind of find a comfortable position and ended up falling asleep. But I woke up at like 30. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch something on Netflix as I go to bed. And uh, started watching it, and I just stayed up and watched the whole thing. I was so enthralled with it. I highly recommend it. Excuse me. Man, I'm running out of steam. I'm actually looking at the clock. Thankfully, we only have a little bit of time left here. Anything? What else should I say? Um, I've been watching Jeopardy <laughs> with my girlfriend. A couple things. We, um, we've kind of had these lazy weekends. Like normally we'll go out and go for a hike and we just haven't done those things the last couple weekends. Um, I think last weekend was also kind of rainy and wet and, um, you know, we woke up and we're like, what do you want to do? And I think we both felt like we were supposed to say, like, go outside and do something, but I don't think we really wanted to. We just said, uh, let's get pho. <laughs> and so we just got pho and, uh, probably ended up watching Jeopardy, but just watching Netflix. But we have started watching Jeopardy, and this this is where I start to feel like an old man. But it's like, I ne- never in my life did I thought I would enjoy watching Jeopardy. Um, but yeah, we started watching Jeopardy on Netflix, and uh, I think they just show a bunch of winning streaks. But there was this dude, Austin, that we watched who we fucking hated. We fucking hated this guy. He's just such a nerd. You'd have to watch it, but... After a while, you start getting kind of endeared to him. And then they have the whole, like, tournament of champions, and it's like, ah, fuck, I gotta root for this guy. Because you feel so invested in him, you know? Um, but yeah, for some reason, Jeopardy made me think of, when I was watching this documentary for uh, Operation Varsity Blues for the ACT or the SAT, there was an interesting commentator in that documentary who says, like, the way this whole thing was played out in the media, this proxy who sort of took people's SAT or ACTs, the way he was sort of paraded about in the media as if he's some evil mastermind, right? Like he's a genius who took the SAT or the ACT and just sort of was a was a sort of evil genius who could just sort of take this test and do very well on it. But this person made a good insight where they said, what people don't realize is that these are tests made for children. You know, most adults, you know, they're a long way from their education, so maybe some of the math or stuff, but it's not that difficult. Like most adults could do reasonably well or any, any person who is a sort of a test facilitator or, you know, uh, associated with academia should be able to do pretty well on this test, right? Uh, An educated adult should be able to do fairly well on this test. Um, That's how I've come to see Jeopardy. (laughs) Like when we watch Jeopardy, I have an answer for about half the questions. Now, there's plenty of times where I see someone go on a run where I'm like, how the fuck do people know that when it comes to like foreign historical politics or something? 
uh, obscure geography questions. You j- and you just see one person. How does that? How does one person have such a diverse, varied knowledge on so many different subjects? That I don't fucking understand. But when you when you're very young and you watch Jeopardy, you think, oh wow. This just must be fucking for geniuses, right? And the truth is, that's that's not the case. One, it's for television, so they, you know, it, one, it probably caters to people who fancy themselves to be relatively intelligent, right? Like part of the part of the fun is playing along at home, right? If it was all shit, none of us had the answers to it. Probably wouldn't be very entertaining. But the fact that many of us get some answers, we feel pretty fucking smart, right? But it is funny for me and my girlfriend, like we, we sort of play together. And normally an episode of Jeopardy is probably like 20 minutes long, but it usually takes about 30 minutes because I pause after every one and see if we can come up with an answer. <sighs> okay. So yeah, what am I saying? Watch Jeopardy. You folks do anything for St. Patty's Day? Yeah, me neither. People love that shit. Yeah, there's so many holidays for me I've uh, never even thought about, really. The only time St. Patty's Day ever meant anything to me, and only because it meant something to other people around me, it didn't really mean anything to me personally, but uh, I did Irish dancing for a long time. For like a year straight, every Monday I did Irish dancing at this place called the Starry Plow in Berkeley, California. And uh, there was a couple St. Patrick's Day, I remember. They'd have a big celebration, have a... What would they have? Corned beef and hash? Is that the is that the meal? But yeah, they would have a huge celebration. Yeah, I hope that place reopens. Anyway. Well, I don't know. I'm out of things to say. The only other note I have, which I <laughs> I must have noted it down when I was sitting across from my girlfriend, but she do you guys know that blue ketchup exists? Google image that shit and tell me what you think. It's fucking disgusting. Apparently, and not just blue ketchup, I looked this up. Heinz actually tried to, probably in the late 90s is what it looks like, but they came up with these like colored ketchups, these sort of multi-colored ketchups like that was supposed to be fun for kids. But blue ketchup looks fucking disgusting. There's also purple ketchup too, which looks even worse. Do you guys remember like Nickelodeon Gak? I think that's what they called it. Sounds so sexual. But you know what I'm talking about? Like that gack, like that Nickelodeon slime shit. That's what blue ketchup looks like. I think gack might also be cocaine. Or is that yak? I know it's yayo. Is gack coke? I don't know. I feel like my girlfriend. My girlfriend's so interesting. She's so innocent. Like she doesn't know any drugs. Like if you said cocaine, she wouldn't know what it was. Is it something you shoot? Is it something you snort? Is it something you smoke? I like that. I like that type of innocence. (laughs) I don't know why. I just had this crazy memory of one time when I was growing up, we were with our friend. I probably shouldn't say his name, (laughs) but uh, his sister was kind of a juvenile delinquent. And, um, I remember she, she was really into bands like Bush and Marilyn Manson, which was like really uh, kind of gothy back when those bands came out. Like, 
And uh, I remember sitting in her room. We were, you know, we would hang out over at this our friend's house all the time. And his sister was older. And one time we were in her room, and she knew all about drugs. Clearly, she got in trouble. I think she got in trouble with the with law with the law about drugs. I remember, actually, I remember one time walking home from school and seeing her being taken away in a cop car. And it wasn't that surprising. It was just like, oh well, there you go. But I remember one time sitting in her bedroom. We were all sort of hanging out in there, and the topic of drugs came up and drug slang, and. Uh, your boy done didn't know shit about drugs, but I think I was trying to probably trying to impress her, and she, I think she mentioned like purple hair, and I was like, oh, I know what that means. It means weed, and I just totally fucking guessed. She was like, oh, you know your drugs, and I said, yeah, 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 yes, I do. <laughs> and she just spouts off a litany of other drugs by their code name and asks if I know what they are, and I just spit out the first thing that comes to mind. So I don't know what the words were, but it was like purple hair, weed. Um, um, you know, super zany, crack cocaine. And I just sort of spout, no matter what she threw at me, I just said the first drug that came to mind. And she was like really impressed that I knew these. And I was just fucking, they were all lucky guesses. But I felt so fucking cool. <laughs> I don't know what that says about my priorities as a kid, but probably, probably just that I was eager to impress people. Here I was sitting across from an older person who was like, hey, this young guy knows his stuff. And I was like, fuck yeah. Year, well, maybe I shouldn't say anymore, but I, I was going to say years later, had this crazy experience where you ever encounter people you know, like I have this all the time, like you'll be at the supermarket and you see someone that you used to work with and you kind of know that you both see each other, but the last thing either of you fucking wants is to talk to each other. So you pretend like you don't see each other. I have those experiences all the time. I know what they feel like. But I've never had this experience where years later, my brother and I were going to this alternative high school and we were just sitting across from one of the facilitators and we were about 30 minutes into a conversation where the person said something which was like, oh, it just seemed familiar. And as we asked probing questions, we both realized that this was our friend's sister. And it wasn't like we fucking knew it. We both were just like, oh my God, you're so-and-so's sister. And she was like, oh, you're so-and-so, you're the twins. And we were both like, oh, what the fuck? And our minds were blown. And I've never had that happen before. I've had a, a thousand people I pretended not to know in my life, but I've never had it where I was sitting across from someone that I knew very well, or relatively well, I should say. I was, I was reasonably acquainted with and realized I was 30, min 30 minutes into a conversation with somebody I thought was a stranger and was actually someone that I knew very well. So that was very fucking strange. Anyway, <clears throat> fuck this shit. We're done. We're done with this episode. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do. On Apple Podcasts and Spotify, everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find us. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, the video podcast is out now. You can find it at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. Find the latest episode. See the video posted there. Watch it. If you like it, click through to YouTube. Subscribe to the channel. And check us out there. You can see your boy's pretty face. Otherwise, you know, I was not looking forward to this. Your boy's not feeling great. But hey. We got through another episode. Pretty good. We're knocking on the door of 80. We're in the home stretch toward 100. Life is good, man. All things are good. Your boy's vaccinated. 
and uh, life is moving forward one step at a time. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Thanks for tuning in. And ciao for now. <laughs>